Well, good morning. It's good to be here uh, with you this morning from Buffalo. I bring you greetings from Restoration Church. And I just want to thank you, uh, Church, for your commitment to, uh, to really care for your elders well. I know it's, uh, that Mike is on sabbatical, and it just speaks volumes of you as a church to recognize the importance of this, and, and this will serve you well in the long run as well, giving him time to replenish in the Lord and to strengthen uh, his faith and marriage and all that goes with that sabbatical time. So kudos to you. I want to say good job, uh, Renovation Church. So let you know, um, I've stumbled upon this new documentary series that um, it's fascinating. It's on the A&E Network. And some of you, this will connect with, some of you it won't connect with, but it's called Legends of the WWE. Has anybody seen this? This is phenomenal, okay? So I started watching it a couple weeks ago. And now I'm a child that, that came of age in the 80s and the 90s. So this documentary series, it takes a look at the life of many of the pro wrestlers through the 80s and 90s. These are the, the guys that I grew up watching. So Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper, these names may not mean anything to you, but they were significant to my formation as a child, okay? So this, the, the documentary series, my wife, she's not into it, but she's into me, so she's willing to indulge me to watch this. So we've been watching for the last several weeks, and last week we watched the documentary on the Iron Sheik, and we got about halfway through the documentary, and my wife looked at me, she goes, do we have to watch any more of these? I said, Why? This is great. This is fascinating. She goes, no, it's not. It's the same story over and over and over. She says, it's the same story. You've got a young person who's troubled. They find their way into the pro wrestling world. They go on the road and they're out for 25 to 30 days a month wrestling. Their body breaks down. They start using drugs. They start using alcohol. They start to to have their marriage deteriorate. And at the end of their career, their marriage, their family, their bodies and everything are gone. In fact, last week when we were watching, it ended with a man named Jake the Snake Roberts. Anybody know that name? Okay, some of you know who I'm talking about. So Jake the Snake is sitting in his wheelchair, and he has oxygen in his nose, and he says, I gave everything to this. I gave everything to this. He said, I gave my body. I gave my family. I gave my wife. I gave everything. He goes, and there's one thing I got, this ring. And he holds up his WWE Hall of Fame ring. He goes, this is it. That's all I got. It cost me everything. And all I got was this silly ring. So there's the theme of Ecclesiastes. There it is. The, the, the theme of Ecclesiastes, that's, that's about the entire theme of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book that shows us the meaninglessness of life. Meaninglessness of life apart from God. There's an asterisk that has to be around or a parenthesis around this entire series that you're going through in Ecclesiastes. The meaninglessness, the pointlessness of life apart from God. We see this, that the book is, is actually talking about what humans have been talking about for millennium. The ultimate questions, what is the meaning and the purpose of life? And the author who goes through this book, he, he's, grows, he's increasingly frustrated and used the word vexation, anger, over trying to find meaning in this world apart from God. 
So the author is doing that, and this morning what we're going to see is we turn into Ecclesiastes. If you have a copy of God's Word, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 will be in verses uh, 12 all the way through 2, uh, 11 this morning. And the author is expressing three frustrations this morning that we'll see. Three frustrations. The first frustration is the knowledge of this world is frustrating and meaningless apart from God. We'll see that in the verses 12 through 15. And then the the movement goes to the pleasures of this world, and the author says that the pleasures of this world are just not pleasurable enough apart from God, verses 1 through 3, chapter 2. And then in verses two or uh, 4 through 12, the author says this, the riches of this world are just not rich enough apart from God. So let's open it in God's Word, and let's read along, and we'll follow along with the, the text this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 2, uh, 12. This is God's word. I, the preacher, had been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughing, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under the sun during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools, which to the water, the forest of growing trees. I I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also... I had also great possessions of the herds and the flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delight of many the children of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them, keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all of my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And all I got was this silly ring. That's how he, it's in essence, what he's getting at. The first thing I want you to see is that the knowledge of this world is frustrating and meaningless 
apart from God. Knowledge in this world is frustrating and it's meaningless apart from God. Now, the author calls himself the, the teacher here, and we know that there's debates about, is this Solomon writing? Is this somebody writing in Solomon's voice? The, the, the bigger thing I want you to focus in on here is it was well known that Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, when he ascended to the throne, what he asked God for was wisdom. We just saw a coronation yesterday. I don't know if anybody spent the time, wasted time, spent the time watching all of that mess yesterday, but there was little humility to say, Give me wisdom so that I might rule the people well. But that's what Solomon started off. He said, God, give me wisdom to rule the people well. Now, wisdom, as we look at in the Old Testament scripture, how the Hebrew mind thought of wisdom, it was not just gaining intellectual knowledge. Wisdom was, how do I live rightly? How do I live in, in this world and live wisely and apply these things in this world? And we know that Solomon was a man of great wisdom. But if you notice, the voice of the preacher here is doing something. The voice of the preacher here is seeking to find the questions of life, the, the meaningful, significant questions of life apart from God, just using the powers of humanity, just using the powers that are in the, the human person. See, God created humans in his image, and he gave us as human beings made in his image, he gave us some powers or some capacities that we might gain knowledge. He gives us three powers or capacities to gain knowledge through. He gives us reason. We can reasonably look at the world around us and we can figure out some things just by observing the world around us. He also gave us experience. We can learn some things by experience, right? You get hit in the face with a baseball a few times and you learn to duck out of the pitchers or out of the batter's box, right? You learn those things by experience. And then we learn some things by intuition. God has given humans made in the image of God these three capacities by which we can gain understanding and intellect. But we need to see something here because what the teacher is talking about is trying to use just those powers apart from God to find meaning and purpose in life. Those powers are good. Those powers are helpful to us, but those powers are limited and they do not allow us to fully understand or even have knowledge of what I will say salvific knowledge. Those powers can show us some things about life, but they don't show us how to be right with God. They do not show us we need revelation from God through special revelation through Jesus Christ in the scriptures to know how to be right with God, how to have salvation. And here's what the author is doing here. He's trying to find the meaning of life apart from God. And he's finding something about his powers. They're severely diminished because of what's called sin. The, the reformers talked about something called the notic effect of sin. And here's, here's what they meant by that. That sin is not just moral failure. It's more devastating than that. Sin is much more devastating than just moral failure. It includes more than that. Sin affects our reason. Sometimes, think about this. How many contradictions are you comfortable keeping in your mind? I find that I'm actually sometimes a walking ball of contradiction sometimes. Just listen to some of the arguments. Listen to cable news, right? And you'll find all kinds of contradictions. And you're like, wait, what, what, what? The human, because of sin, we have this 
this, we can be a walking ball of contradiction, and we can actually sit there. Because of sin, sometimes our experiences are often not that trustworthy, are they? Have you ever had that experience where something happened and you walk away and you're like, did that just happen? I don't know how to make sense of that. And then because of sin, you know how we often interpret that? There's something wrong with me. You get that? Sin affects our intuitions. I know that I'm inclined often to the wrong things. What God has revealed to us through Scripture is our need for salvation, and our purpose in life is revealed to us through Scripture. But here's what the author here in Ecclesiastes is trying to do. He's trying to find these meanings apart from God. He's elevated his gift of intellect, a good gift. He's elevating it to an ultimate gift, and here's what he starts to find out. He's going to pursue intellectual knowledge, and here's what he finds out. He says that this is striving after the wind. This is vexation. This is frustrating. The pursuit of intellectual knowledge, it's an unending quest because the nature of questions by themselves do what? Produce more questions. I remember when I finished my, um, my, my seminary work, my master's of divinity, 96 hours it took, 96 hours it took to do this, this degree, right? Five years of my life, I'm exhausted. All of the peers who are with me, they're exhausted. And I remember that we're all gathered together to walk. And right before we're going to walk and we're going to get our degrees, the, the dean of the school came up and he said, you know, Here's the beauty about gaining intellectual knowledge. There's always another lap to go. So if anybody would like to sign up for your PhD, here you go. And we all rushed and got done, and our wives were like, you what? We were, you're what? Yeah, yeah, I think we should do a P- What? Because here's the nature of what the author is finding here. He set his mind to pursue knowledge, to pursue wisdom apart from God, to mine from this world, all that he could mine, and here's what he comes to the conclusion of. Another degree on the wall is just vexation. He says it's striving after the wind. It's, it's vanity. It's vapor. Another question produces another question. It's just striving. It's exhausting. I kind of think of it like this when he says striving after the wind. It brings a picture to me of the Niagara River. So I live not too far from the Niagara River. And, and every, every spring now, here's the tragedy of what's going to happen. Every spring, somebody is going to buy a new boat. They're not going to be familiar with the Niagara River. Now, there's this thing at the end of the Niagara River. You all know this, right? It's called the falls. Okay, And that's a tricky thing. So a lot of people will boat on the upper Niagara River. And they've never done it before. And what they will do is they'll throw anchor in the, from their boat and they will let their kids jump off the boat and swim while the boat is anchored. That's not a good idea, okay? Here's why, because that water is moving so fast. Here's what you find out. that The boat stays still, but the current takes you down so fast you cannot swim back to your boat and you get exhausted and you drown. And every spring this will happen. This is essentially what the author is saying here is, look, trying to, trying to 
get answers, trying to find my meaning and purpose in life just through intellectual pursuit. It's exhausting. It's like striving after the wind. It's like swimming against the current in the Niagara River. This is why he says it's vexation. You get angry, angry. And then here's what he says in verse 18. For it is much wisdom, where there is much wisdom, there is much vexation. And he who is increasing in knowledge also increases in sorrow. Anger mixed with sadness is a recipe for depression. And he goes, here's, here's, I have put my mind, I've set my mind to find meaning and purpose through my intellectual endeavors, through wisdom in this world, apart from God. And here's where it took me, to a place of anger and sorrow. The second thing that he says now, maybe maybe there's another way. So he jumps in in verse 2, and he says, I said in my heart, come now, and I will test you with pleasure and enjoy myself. It's the second point that he now is going to try to find meaning in. And here's the point. The pleasures of this world are not pleasurable enough apart from God. The teacher moves to from finding meaning in intellectual knowledge to now to pleasure, laughter, good times. He says, but this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I've searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart is still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. He starts off with just laughter. Now, laughter is a good thing, right? They say laughter is medicine to the soul. It's a, it's a good thing. He, he's trying to now go, okay, well, maybe, maybe the meaning of life is being the perpetual class clown. Maybe making people laugh. That's where there's going to be ultimate meaning. In fact, he says, maybe, maybe you can add a little bit more medicine to the soul by, by adding some wine, some alcohol to it, and let me marry myself. Now, what he's not talking about here is debauchery, okay? Like getting rip-roaring drunk and throwing up. That's not what he's talking about here. Anybody who's... You don't need to have right a PhD in life. Well, I shouldn't say it like that, but you don't have to have a PhD in, um, in, in ethics to know something that hanging over the toilet after a rough night out is just not fun, right? Anybody who's experienced that, that's not what he's talking about here. What he's saying here is, hey, maybe the meaning of life is just making people laugh. Maybe it's pleasure. Add a little wine to it. Let's have a party. This might bring, this might be what life is all about. And just look at the world, right? Look at the, some of the movies and the things that we entertain that we have. What's always put out there, the frat boy life or the sorority girl life, and this is where it's at, right? This is where meaning and purpose is. But then you look at life. Chris Farley, right? Any remember Chris Farley? Fat man, little coat. Remember that whole skit? Robin Williams, you see, those who put their, their entire life said, all I got is this silly ring. Look at pleasure in this world is good and we ought to enjoy it. Laughter in this world is a good gift. We ought to enjoy it. But it's not where we find ultimate meaning and purpose. We're not in this, on this earth ultimately for pleasure. 
We're not here ultimately for pleasure. Look, if that is your expectation, and that seems to be what's put out there all the time, is here, life is about having good times and pleasure and laugh. If that's your expectation, brothers and sisters, can I tell you, you're going to be disappointed. If you are going to be disillusioned, if you seek to make life a joke, you will become a joke. And you can see this. You can observe this, and that's what the teacher observes. If you seek to make life a joke, you become a joke. Age has a funny way of doing that to us. You ever see the, the, the person who's, who's trying to live 40 years younger than they really are? And you go, hmm. If you seek to make life a joke, you will become a joke. The pleasure of this world are just not pleasurable enough apart from God. So now he switches. Now again, the teacher is going to change gears because that was vexation. That was frustrating. So in verse 4, he said, I make great works. I built homes. I planted vineyards. And if you go through these next few verses, notice how many times, in fact, let me read them if we have time. Notice how many times you're going to hear the words, I and myself here. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself. I'm sorry, I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens, and the repetition goes on and on and on. I and myself, I and myself. You're getting here the gospel of self. And here's what he says, I built my empire. I built homes. I mean, he's got an episode of Cribs here that he's unpacking. He's like, look at what I did. I built gardens. I've got parks. I've got fruit trees. I've got pools. I've got every piece of technology that there is. I have influence. I have fame. I've got it all. And still, what was it? Nothing but vexation. I don't know if anybody caught the, uh, the Elvis movie, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, the, I, 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 all right, little known fact, sidebar here, I actually saw Elvis live in concert, so I'm giving you my age as being tipped. My, I was five years old, and my parents took me to see Elvis. So we're an Elvis family. And this movie that they did was a fascinating look at Elvis Presley's life through his manager, Colonel Parker. And it was fascinating because on one hand, you get this, this man, Elvis Presley, who's born poor in Mississippi, and he achieves great wealth, great fame, transforms the music industry, and what he wants more than anything is to be rich and to be famous, and he gets it. And then there's another guy, his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, and you know what he wants? He wants money, and guess what? He gets it. And finally... Near the end of Elvis's life, there's this moment in the movie where he's on stage performing in Las Vegas. He's got the penthouse suite. He's got a, a packed audience. And he starts singing the song. And the way the movie did it is beautiful because it's juxtaposed. He starts singing the song, Suspicious Minds. And in that song, he says, I'm caught in a trap. I can't get out. And it pans to Elvis with all the fans praising him and and cheering his name, and he's going, I'm caught in a trap, I can't get out. And then at the same time, Colonel Parker's selling his soul to the casino on a napkin. I'm caught in a trap, 
I can't get out. I'm caught in a trap. I can't get out. I'm caught in a trap. I can't get out. And the writer of Ecclesiastes sings the same song. I've had intellect. I've got degrees on the wall. I have made a name for myself. And it's still, it's just vexation and sad. And I'm chasing after the wind. And I've made people laugh. I've got people around me who tell me I'm funny and they smile and I'm empty inside. And I've got my mansions and my gardens and I've got it all. And I'm caught in a trap and I can't get out. The emptiness of life leaves the author full of anger and sadness. So last week I was in um, I was in Southwest Florida visiting my son and my daughter-in-law, and um, I was in a really, really nice part of Southwest Florida. We were staying there, and so I pull into a CVS, and I've got to go, you know, get get some, you know, just supplies, and I'm in line, and it's it's a pretty sizable line, and let's just put it this way, um, everybody was quite a bit older than me, okay, um, I'm 51. So that'll help you have some. They were quite a bit older than me. And um, watching this woman who's working at the counter at CVS, and she's obviously frazzled. She's overwhelmed, and the line is pretty long. And all of a sudden, the grumbling starts. And, and people in line are starting to get nasty. And I'm like, you're buying Q-tips. Why are you so angry, right? It's not that big a deal, right? But it's taking too long. And all of a sudden, now it starts to break out, right? They start fighting, and they start, biting, and they start criticizing this woman, and they start cutting this poor woman down. And I'm like, she's, she's doing her best, okay? Why are you so angry? And then I got into my car, and I backed out, and somebody honks at me. I'm like, you are five miles away. Why are you honking at me? Right? Angry. And then we go out to eat and I'm listening to the table next to me talk to the waitress and angry. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you so angry? This is paradise, right? You're rich. You're retired. You're done. Why are you so angry? Because I built my life on meaninglessness. The uh, late counselor David Polison, he, he gives an example of this. He says, imagine living your life and you're climbing a ladder. And you find out that that ladder is only 12 feet high. He says, now imagine climbing a ladder. You're trying to get to the top of a building and the ladder is 12 feet high. You get to the top rung, and you look up, and you're like, I can't reach it. It's unattainable. That's why it's so angry, climbing the wrong ladder of life. Ecclesiastes, I'm going to be candid. You're going to be in this book for a bit, right? And I was saying this to Brandon this morning. Um, brace yourself, because it gets worse. <laughs> Apart from God. Because here's the meaning of Ecclesiastes, and we'll close with this. Here's the point of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes points us from the gospel of self to the gospel that would come in Jesus Christ. The philosophies of this world, they seem really wise. The wisdom of this world, it seems really wise, but then it leaves you going, there must be something more. 
And Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes points us away from that and points us to the cross. See, it seems wise in this world, right? It seems wise in this world by all of our observations. It seems wise to pursue pleasure. But here's the beauty of the gospel. The crucifixion of Christ shows us that laying down one's life is where real pleasures lie. For the joy set before him, he would lay down his life. It seems that the the riches of this world, it seems wise to seek after the riches of this world, but in the gospel of Christ, what we see is there's a surrender. When we surrender is where we find the riches of Christ. It seems wise to gain knowledge of the material world, but in the resurrection, here's what we encounter. We encounter a power And the peace that comes in the living Christ who rules both the visible and the invisible world. Ecclesiastes leaves us longing for answers that can only be found at a bloody cross in an empty tomb. So as we close, in conclusion, the wisdom of God, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But for those who will surrender, it's life. Pleasures of the gospel will satisfy our soul. The pleasures of this world will leave our soul empty. The riches of Christ offer us purpose, meaning, and satisfaction. We go to the cross and the empty tomb. We learn how to enjoy the pleasures of this world. We learn how to handle the riches that are made available to us. We learn how to find our significance and our purpose in the love of Christ. Thanks be to God that this world is bigger than just a silly ring. This world is an opportunity to know the living God. Unending. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son. I pray for the one here today who, Lord, really resonates with the frustration of seeking another accolade in academia. The one who resonates, Lord, with seeking after approval and laughter from friends. The one who seeks, Lord, meaning and significance in material things. I pray for them, Lord, that your heart, that their heart would be quickened with the meaningless of those apart from you. Draw them. Father, I pray that you would cause your children, those who are adopted, as we said this morning, adopted in you. Father, I pray that you will cause us, Lord, to be mindful of the traps of this world. May you be our first love and our neighbor our second. Father, for the, one, for the one who has completely rejected you, I pray today you will soften their heart and they will receive you. As others come and partake in the Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray that those who are far from you will repent. 
and find acceptance in you. In Christ's name, amen.